0: hey welcome to night school i'm just sitting here thinking about times in my life when i've lied should tell you something about my night just sitting here thinking about times in my life that i've lied it's more than i really it's more than i realize because i'm not a liar i don't consider myself a liar in the least not a liar in the least and uh As a result, like I I don't often think about that. I'm not in the habit of lying. You know, I talked about it a year or two ago where I realized maybe last year, whenever I did that episode, I was watching this. I don't know how I ended up here, but late at night I was watching somebody do a live stream of this Friday the 13th video game, a video game. You you play it. It's like some sort of multiplayer online game. Really looks good. Good graphics. And you played a a kid at camp. And what you do is hide from Jason. That's the entire game. It's just sort of like a death match where you're just hiding from Jason around the camp. And I was watching that, and the game looked really cool. And then it hit me while I was watching this. I was like, I've never seen Friday the Thirteenth. But at one point when I was a kid, I lied and said I did. I didn't volunteer it, but at some point I must have been in elementary school, maybe. Maybe like fifth or sixth grade. This kid asked me, he goes, oh, have you seen Friday the 13th? And I just instinctively went, yeah. And then he said, do you remember the part where where this, this happens? Doesn't that remind you that he had some reason he wanted to talk to somebody who had seen Friday the 13th because he wanted to make some reference or point something out. And when he asked me that. What he was actually what I was hearing was, hey, I want to tell you something. But you need to say yes to this question for me, for me to tell you this other thing. So I knew that. You know, how's this for analyzing your childhood? But I knew that in order for him to tell me the other thing that he really wanted to tell me, I had to pretend that I I had seen Friday the 13th, even though I'm not going to understand the reference. It makes no sense. But another part of it, too, is just you want to be cool. The other question that I was hearing when he said, hey, have you seen Friday the 13th was, hey, are you cool? Hey, are you cool? And what am I going to answer? Yeah, I'm cool. And so he's going to tell me a cool thing about Friday the 13th. But after I said that, I started to think I had seen it. I'm not a horror movie fan. I used to see... I remember when uh, Jason Goes to Hell came out. Because they had a ton of them at the local blockbuster. You'd go there and you'd... I think it's his mask is silver or metal. And there's fire behind it. There might even be a snake coming out of his eye. I don't know. I know there's a silver mask and fire. And just through cultural osmosis, I know so much about it. And it got me thinking about how some years back, probably, I don't know, probably eight or nine years ago, I had met this new friend who asked me, who asked the same question this kid asked me growing up, which was like, oh, you know, Friday the 13th. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, that sound that it makes when Jason shows up. It's like, cha, 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 something to that effect. I've never seen it, but I know about that. When she asked that question, I actually knew what she was referring to, even though I hadn't seen it, just through cultural osmosis. I know who Jason is. I know that sound that it makes when he shows up on screen or when he's nearby. It's a voice going cha cha cha, which is really eerie. It's effective. Like when you think about somebody doing that back then, like I know about it, it's famous. I've seen parodies of that. But the idea of someone doing that in a horror movie, having this weird uh, vocal effect, on the soundtrack whenever he's nearby. That's really cool. But I, the reality was I had never seen Friday the 13th. So I'd been perpetuating this lie. I think I had even convinced myself I had seen it all because this kid and the kid who asked me in elementary school, he was like, he was this little black kid named Sean. He's the same kid who convinced me to draw a, fi- a picture of two people having sex that the teacher found. I didn't get in trouble, but it was humiliating. He's the one, I drew it on a note card, I've told that story on here, where Sean was like, draw this, draw this. And so I ended up, make them fat, make them fat. And so I ended up drawing a fat couple standing face to face with just this big amorphous hole in the front of her pelvis and the guy's penis going into it. I wish I had that. The teacher confiscated it. I imagine she called my mom or something. We never talked about it. Um, it was, she called me to the front of the class and showed me. You know she did, she did it quietly, but she showed me the, the index card where I'd drawn in pencil, this fat couple. I think they both had long hair too. It was really primal. It was a fat couple with long hair, and I was super young. It was in third grade. Fourth grade maybe. I think third. Yeah, third. It's important important that I clarify uh but he, he had me draw that and he's the same kid who also uh, asked me if I'd seen Friday the 13th and I lied and said yes he was obsessed with Marilyn Manson and Beavis and Butthead and rollerblading he was the only black kid in my grade and he was a real he was a, a troublemaker not a bad one like he he wasn't you know he was just a he was a trickster like he convinced this other kid i knew in fifth grade to steal everybody's lunch boxes from the cubby because people would put their lunch boxes out in the hallway they had these cubbies and coat racks and so kids would put their their lunch bag their lunch box in these cubbies in this sort of uh, yeah it was, it was like a hall not a hallway but sort of a like a foyer area that connected to multiple classrooms it's like a foyer area it was like this foyer area um, uh, but he and this other kid I knew, he, Sean convinced him to, to steal the lunch boxes and they took him to the bathroom and the kid I knew who went with him, they took all these lunch boxes and, and the kid I knew was like, oh, this is a prank. We're going to do something. So he asked Sean, he's like, so now what do we do with them? And Sean was like, what do you mean? We're going to eat them. <laughs> Like, his whole plan of stealing the lunchboxes was, we're going to take him to the bathroom and eat him. So you see what I mean. I mean, he was doing stuff like that. He was asking me to draw people having sex, a fat couple. He specifically requested that they be fat. And it tells me that he didn't know anything more about anatomy than I did, given I I drew the vagina on the front of the pelvis and huge and just dark, just a huge dark hole, huge dark hole. So, he, and he didn't correct me. He didn't say that's wrong. Uh, he probably enjoyed my art, my creative license. But yeah, he was also watching horror movies, Friday the Thirteenth, and I lied to him. He was like, "Have you seen it?" I said, "I said yeah." And then I, I spent up until last year believing I had. Because it's hard once you lie to yourself about having seen Friday the Thirteenth, you see references to it in so many places, and you become so familiar with what it is that it's a really convincing lie. Like I know the plot of the first movie, I know the plot of a few of them somehow. Like I know that the first movie, his mom's the killer, and then he he grows up and becomes the killer in the second one. I know all these details about the movies. I think I, I feel like I even know the name of the camp, uh, Camp Crystal Lake. I think. I know there's a Camp Crystal Lake in one of those big horror movies. I think it's that one. So, somehow, this movie that I've never seen, I know all these details about. So, if you know all those details and you told a stupid lie to seem cool when you were 11 years old, it's very easy just to trick yourself your entire life. I mean, there have even been times on this show where I've told a story and usually they're pretty accurate. But there was one that I told a while back and I realized afterward oh, I changed some minor detail. It's like it didn't change the story, but I changed some detail because I'd forgotten that it was this way rather than that way. Because we do that. We do that all the time. And I mean, I, I was thinking even tonight, I'm like, I've lied in the last few months. I think of lying as something that I just don't do. But I've told little lies in the last month, just little ones, not destructive lies, not manipulative lies, I guess you could say any lie is manipulative, but I don't think I've been manipulative, but I just realized like I've said little things. They're not big lies. They're not important lies. It's not pathological. But I just realized like little times that because I, I kind of convinced myself a few years ago, that like, oh, there's no reason to ever tell a lie. Like, and then I, I'm realizing, oh no, you know, I'm still fallen. There are times where I say something that's not completely truthful. And it's usually very unimportant. It usually brings me no benefit. It's basically the equivalent of saying I've seen Friday the 13th when I haven't. Turns out I'm still pretending I saw movies. But admitting that you lie sometimes, that's torture. Admitting to yourself when you've lied. Like thinking back throughout my entire life, I can remember my lies. When I really think about it, oh yeah, I lied about that. And it's usually just an effort to, if not to be cool, I think the Friday the 13th one is, you know, kind of part of this because part of the reason for that was like, sometimes you lie because someone wants to tell you more about something, but you need to answer in the affirmative to the first question. Have you seen this? Yes. Okay. I'm going to tell you about something that I wouldn't tell you otherwise if you had said no. So there's different, there's, there's equivalent situations to that. I can't think of any examples, but sometimes that's what it is. Like it's not manipulative, but you want to be agreeable. Part of it is that, like, you want to say yes to be agreeable because that person is looking to say more or whatever it is. And I I even remember a family member who's one of the most honest, good people I know, And I remember like a story, getting word of a story that this relative of mine had lied about having a bicycle when they didn't. They'd moved to a new neighborhood and some neighbor kids were on bikes and came up and they were like, do you even have a bicycle? Do you have a bike? And this relative of mine lied and said, yes. They had the money for a bike. The family had money. They just weren't really a biking family. For whatever reason, the kid didn't have a bike. But they lied to the, uh, to the neighbor kids and said they did, which is kind of funny. Because they wanted to be agreeable. They wanted to be cool, I'm sure. And it's funny that it got back to the family and it was a point of discussion in the family. Like, let's talk about why you lied about having a bicycle. And I, you know, This person did end up getting a bike. But I can totally understand that situation. I mean, I don't know how to ride a bike. I can relate to that directly because I, I, I never learned. I never learned how to ride a bike. To this day, I can't, but I can totally understand being in a situation. I mean, I don't think I ever lied about it. I don't think I ever said I could ride a bike when I couldn't, but I can totally understand being in a situation where someone's like, Hey, you want to ride bikes? And I'm like, I know how to do it, but I I don't really want to right now. I mean, I I remember a time being at a friend's house where he's like, Oh, I got bikes. We could take the bikes out later. And I was like, I don't really feel like it. I didn't want to say that I couldn't ride one. In that case, I didn't lie. I just kind of acted like I wasn't interested in doing it. So I can relate to the idea of someone being like, do you even have a bike? And being like, I do, but it's not here. It's like the breakfast club. Oh, I I lost my virginity to a girl, but she lived in Canada. Oh, I have a girlfriend, but she lives over here. She lives in Canada. You know, it's an old joke. It's kind of what it is. Oh, I have a bike, but it's not here. So you tell little lies like that. You want to be agreeable. You want to be cool. It seems like you're going to suffer some social, some negative fate if you just tell the truth and say, oh, I can't ride a bike. And, and a kid might mock you for that. As a kid, that kind of thing could get you mocked. I mean, adults do that to people about various things. Maybe, maybe not bikes. Although I do get that as an adult, like now I'm proud that I can't ride a bike. It's like being gay. I know exactly what it's like to be gay. I know what it's like to be gay. Not knowing how to ride a bike is kind of like being gay. Because people assume that you're, uh, people assume that I know how to ride one. And when you tell them you can't, when you come out of the closet saying you can't ride a bike, they're like, you can't? Really? Really? They don't mock you for it, but they're astonished. They're in disbelief. They ask you three times, you really can't ride a a beak. Can't ride a beak. Can't ride a beak. A beak They are kind of astonished. It's a big deal. It is like coming out of the closet. I met a girl who couldn't ride a bike or swim. I thought it was cool. I was like, that's cool. I mean, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage if you're in a boat that gets overturned, but uh, I think that's kind of cool because we just assume people can do those things. What does that make her? If not knowing how to ride a bike is gay, what do you call a girl who uh, can't ride a bike and can't swim? Maybe that's more like being trans or something. Had to work it in there. But Stupid, stupid joke. Maybe it was good, actually. It might have been a good one. I don't know. I'm not a good judge of my own stupid jokes. But uh, anyway, you know, just I, I guess like just telling those little lies that you come to believe. I mean, you're not going to believe if you if you lie and say you can ride a bike when you can't, you're not going to eventually believe that you're going to know that you can't ride one. But there's a lot of other things that you lie to yourself about at some point, And then over time, you become convinced of the lie. And it might be the most trivial thing, like having seen a movie or not seen a movie. But I'm thinking about a friend of mine, a guy I grew up with, he told a lot of lies. Like when I look back at childhood, I'm like, and and I knew it. Like I knew that he lied, but they were almost always very harmless. He told a lot of harmless lies. And sometimes it would be to his benefit. Sometimes it was manipulative. I mean, when you tell that many lies, it's going to be manipulative some of the time. But it was never horribly destructive. And I noticed it at a very early age he would tell me a story and just something in my gut would say, that's not true. That sounds made up. And they would accumulate and they they could be about anything. Like one time he told me a lie about one of those just classic, you know, pre-internet lies about video games because video games had their own urban legends. You know, back when Nintendo and uh, PlayStation were new talking amongst the boys You'd hear things like, oh, you know, in Final Fantasy VII, if you do this, this, and this, you can unlock
1: Sephiroth. You can play as Sephiroth. Oh, there's a game genie code. You can play as Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII. You can play as Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII.
0: That's a good voice. My voice is a little raw. I like that one. Uh, People would tell you things like that. And he would say things like that. He would be like, oh, I was over at my friend's house, and he has Final Fantasy VII, and he, he, he was playing his, he was
1: playing Sephiroth. He was, I saw my friend playing Sephiroth in Final
0: Fantasy VII. He would tell you things like that, and then you would find out it was total bullshit that wasn't possible. There, there was a lot of video, I mean, just as a tangent, there was a lot of video game lore like that. You can unlock this character. Oh, there's a secret level nobody knows about. There's a secret
1: level nobody knows about in Super Mario.
0: You hear things like that. And you couldn't disprove anybody. In the same way you couldn't disprove urban legends, you'd hear a lot about that. Because there was hidden shit in video games. But people would just lie. And this kid, you know, he would occasionally do stuff like that. It was really unimportant. And what was weird about lies like that is they didn't make him seem cool. I mean, on one hand, I guess it made him seem like he had seen something that nobody else had. And he would tell stories like that. Like, my mom was driving uh, a group of boys to, to another city for some reason. Like, we were going to go do something. And he was in the car, and he was like, oh, one time I was in this neighborhood. We, we were in, like, the next town over. And he was like, one time I was in this neighborhood, and... Uh, like my mom was doing such and such. And like, I, I just like looked down this alley and I saw something I shouldn't have seen. And these guys started chasing me and I had to like duck over here. That, that was one of the more elaborate ones. Like he didn't usually say things that were that unbelievable, but he would just say things like that. And you'd be like, and, and I remember afterward, my mom was like that story he told that sounded like he, he must've just made that up. And his friends would would feel that way. Like it was never anything that would make you not want to be friends with him. He had many many redeeming qualities, but at an early age, we we became aware of the fact that he would just do that. It was just like a quirk, and it could be manipulative sometimes. Where I think about one of the one of my earliest memories of him, and if he heard this, he'd be he would know exactly that I'm talking about him now. But oh well, I mean. I think he knows he did all this stuff. I don't hold it against him. I just think it's fascinating. Because he's not a destructive bad person. It's fascinating that he did this. He wasn't from a a background. His parents weren't like this that I know of. His parents are just straightforward, normal people. But it shows you how young a kid develops this, how young a kid starts trying to play with reality. And knowing him so well, I think that's most of what he was doing. I think he realized at a young age that you can kind of twist reality around and get different results. I think he was testing things because he didn't continue to be this way. You know, as an adult, I I haven't known him to be, I haven't known him to do this very often. But one of my first uh, memories of him was me and him and another kid were at an event. And we were just playing around. The moms were a few feet away. We were just kind of on our own. And the kid we were with had bought a uh, package of Red Hots. A candy I'll never understand the appeal. Cinnamon candy just makes no sense to me. Spicy cinnamon candy. I've never once enjoyed it. I've never once had it and thought like, oh, I get it now. Oh, that was tolerable. And eating a bunch of them. The idea of eating those... Even something like Dots or something. There's like there's some very mild, plain candy that's kind of boring. You're never particularly excited about it. But I can get into Dots. I can get into just about all gummies. But then you have something like Red Hots and Cinnamon Candy, where it's just like, who the fuck likes this? Some people do. That just shows you some people just have very different taste buds. Very different. It's not even like... I mean, I, I do find it kind of revolting... But it's not the worst taste in the world or anything. I just, I, I don't get it. But this other kid had red hots. And the friend who, who liked to twist reality. He he started telling that kid, he goes, oh, those are too hot for you. You should give them to me. No, 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 those are too hot for you. Those are going to be too hot for you. You should give them to me. And he, he was being sincere. Like, I mean, he wasn't, he was lying, he was being manipulative, but he was, uh, he was saying it like he was genuinely concerned about the other kid. Like, oh no, if you eat those red hots, you know, they're going to be too hot for you. I'll take those off your hands. And the other kid caught on. He was like, wait, what? He was like, wait, what? Like, no, I'm not going to give you my candy. And, uh. It was really interesting because I was aware of what was going on. We were, and nobody, I don't think anybody taught him how to do that. His parent, like I said, his parents weren't that way. He Just for whatever reason, this child was born who learned that he could do things like that. And he was obviously testing the waters. He was testing to see, you know, what you could do. And I just remember watching the other kid who caught on too. Like, I was aware of what he was doing. I was like, holy shit, like he's trying to con him out of that candy, trying to con him out of the candy. And the other kid was like, he's trying to con me out of my candy. And that was it. it. Nothing ever came of it. And this kid, he wasn't a big thief. There was one time when we were very young. We were new friends. It was when we first met. He tried to steal a, uh, a trading card from me. I had brought my trading cards over. Well, actually, earlier that night, like, I think it was maybe even the first time I went over to his house. He, uh, I brought over some trading cards. And I'd gotten this cool one, you you used to open the packs of trading cards, you didn't know what you were going to get. And if you got what you thought was a rare one. I mean, what I've learned since then is that these things retained little to no value. But everything in the 90s was, oh, dude, this is going to be worth so much someday. Everything is going to be worth so much. Everything's going to be memorabilia. They they convinced you that every single limited edition, this and that, they really built this bubble up that everything was going to be collectible. Everything's, oh, dude, you got that card. That's going to be worth a billion, billion dollars. People thought they were, it's like the Beanie Baby craze. People thought they were going to pay for their kids' college education with a Beanie Baby. Similar sort of attitude about comics, trading cards, sports cards, all kinds of things. Autographs. If you got something autographed by a professional athlete, you thought, oh, dude, this is going to, this is going to, I'm set. Just wait 20 years and this is going to be worth $10,000. And you just had that attitude. Turns out most of It's worthless. But I brought my trading cards over and I'd gotten one that I think was a hologram card. So because it was a hologram card, you thought, oh my God, you know, I hit the jackpot. And he zeroed in on that card. Like when I was over at his house, he kept looking at it. He was fawning over it like Smeagol in the ring or something. And he he had this trading card price guide. Because you used to just have those. If you were a kid, you'd end up with these like Wizard Comics, which was a comic book price guide. You didn't even give a shit. It just seemed like something cool to have. Oh, I'm going to have a price guide. They would publish them, I think, monthly. And they would tell you what the current going price is, of collectible cards and things. The reason I liked them is because they had pictures. They had action figure ones, too. The reason I liked them, though, is because they had photos of, of whatever the memorabilia was. So you'd be like, oh, look at that. I didn't ever care about the prices. But my friend had that price guide, and he brought it over. And he uh, he was like, oh, or no, what he did is he goes, I want to trade you for that card. He's like, I want to trade you one of mine for that hologram card. And I didn't want to. I was like, I don't want to. And so he, he pulled a card out from his own collection and he was like, see this, this is worth the same amount of money or this is worth more money. And I was like, I don't, I don't believe you. And he went over and he got the price guide. He found that card in it. So I mean, this is a very intelligent kid. He found the card that he was trying to trade me and he goes, see, it's worth $99. He pointed out, I look at it, I'm young, but I can, I can see where that decimal point is. It's 99 cents. But the fact that he even, he thought that, I don't, he couldn't have had this planned. You know, he wasn't planning in advance before I came over. Oh, I'm going to get the price guide out. This card's going to say 99 cents, but this kid could improvise. That's why he was good at doing this is because he could improvise on the spot. Somehow though, he found this card in the price guide was trying to tell me it was worth $99, not 99 cents. And I, I, I could tell though, I was like, I could see that zero in the decimal point. It's not going to trick me. Maybe another kid would be tricked, but it didn't trick me. And at some point I went to the bathroom or something that's, that's going to be important. <laughs> it's a little foreshadowing. And then my mom picked me up. I went home. I'm going through my Marvel cards and I see that that one's missing. That one is missing. And I know right away what happened right away. I'm like, Oh, he stole it. And so I told my mom. I was like, "Oh, hey, he stole my card." She calls his mom. His mom goes into his room. She lift up. She lifted up the curtain at the edge of his bed. You know, the curtain meets the ground. Uh, whatever you call it, bed skirt. Bed skirt. Are you talking about the bed skirt? Obnoxious. Very obnoxious of me. But the uh, bed skirt. And she sees it just sitting there. So he pulled it out of my, you know, my case. And he just like slid it under his bed where I couldn't see it. And she found it. We went and picked it up. Or my mom picked it up. He still continued to be my friend. It was, it was just kind of understood. You know, and to be fair, like, I remember stealing something from uh, a neighbor of mine. Uh, his uncle had given him these little pewter miniature, mini miniatures. They were these little, I think they went to some tabletop role-playing game. They were little medieval fantasy pewter miniatures. I wish I had them. They were so cool. They came in this little, I think it was a, I think he gave them to him in a binocular case. Kind of a rectangular or square leather rec, uh, binocular case. So it looked really cool. And he just had this collection of pewter figurines. And he would sometimes show them to me. And there was a time where, I think he went to the bathroom. You know, bathrooms are obviously the time when a predator strikes. When a thief strikes. Someone who's preying on your goods. I slipped a couple of those figurines out. And I sort of justified it where I was like, he doesn't really care about those. He doesn't care about them. But I mean, his uncle gave them to him. You know, they were a treasured item. And I took them, two of them. And it was a good lesson in uh, like how you can't enjoy things you steal. Because what I did is I got home and I hid them deep in the back of my closet. Because I was like, I can't have those just out and about. He was my neighbor too and he would come over to my house all the time. So I can't display these. I can't openly play with things. these things most of the time. I stole this loot little pewter fantasy figurines. I mean, I never saw anything like them. It really spoke to my imagination. I stole for my imagination, stealing for your imagination. But I realized when I got them home, I was like, "I, I can't enjoy these. My mom might even ask where they came from. That's what little kids do. Like my older sister, I remember there was a family story where she stole the neighbor kids something or maybe the neighbor girl stole something from her and, and she wasn't a thief either. I think it was the neighbor girl. Maybe they both. Did. I think they both did. I think I heard stories about both of them stealing from each other and then they had to write, uh, they had to write the, the, their first initial on the bottom of their toys. Neither of us were thieving families. Neither of us were crime families, but little kids do that. That's how they figure it out. That was, that was for me, like stealing that, stealing those figurines. And you know what? This isn't me trying to whitewash my own story, but I'm almost positive I returned them. Because I have this distinct memory of this stealth mission where I brought the figurines back and put them back when he wasn't looking. I have some vague recollection of that. That's not me just trying to be a good guy. Because I've taken things before. I took other things as a kid that I never gave back. I took uh, other things, I'm I'm sure. Uh, I stole a kid's hat. I had a fight with a friend of mine, and I stole this hat, this hat. And I, uh, not to wear it, but to damage it. We had a fight. I was very young. I took his hat. We had this upstairs window that, that... went out onto the roof and so I I threw it out on the roof on a rainy night and so it just got completely ruined by the elements one day we have a windstorm and the hat falls down onto the deck I get it I take it back to him this is how sick I am I took the hat back to them I said oh look what I found he left his hat at my house it was totally ruined I think it had been white originally or something It had been some light color it was totally discolored it was dirty. He's never going to wear that again. I'm sure he'd forgotten all about it. I don't even think it was an important hat. It wasn't like a family heirloom like oh this is the hat that my dead grandpa gave me. It wasn't sick. It was just we had a fight. He did a bunch of petty shit to me too. We were like five years old. But I ruined his hat on purpose and then I took it back to them because I felt guilt. I didn't do that to be sick. Like, killing somebody's baby and then, like, returning the baby to their doorstep or something. It wasn't like that. It was just purely like, oh, shit. I'd forgotten that I even did that to his hat. I took other things, too. Not a lot, but now and again, I, can, I can't I can think of many. But I know I did it. And... Uh, You know, my friend, though, going back to him, like stealing the card from me. That's the only time he stole from me. I knew him my entire life. And that was when I first met him. He tried to take that card from me. He first tried to trick me into a bad trade. Just a natural conman. Just a natural conman. A natural con. So he tried to trick me. And then when that didn't work, his backup plan was to steal it. Only time that I'm aware of that he ever stole from me. He wasn't a thief. But like I said, he was trying to twist reality. He was trying to get, you know, a material benefit. He wanted that card. He'd felt he fallen in love with that card. He'd fallen in love with the card. But, you know, I think he realized that that wasn't a move. I never knew him to steal from anybody else either. I, I continued to see him, even up through high school, occasionally do things that were manipulative. Get people to give him rides, to give him cigarettes... Usually his closest friends, though, I I didn't, he was not a bad guy. He just kind of, he knew how to game people a little bit. He could have abused it much worse. I wouldn't even say he abused it. He just occasionally knew how to get people to do things for him. And he, he started lying less and less, though. As he got older, I noticed that he was lying less and less. Occasionally he would. Like another friend of ours met some random dude who it turns out had known, you know, the kid who stole from me. And I remember him like being like, oh, you know him? Like I heard he did this, this, and this. And so it seemed like he was still kind of telling some stories and stuff. But he didn't do it too much. He kind of started doing it less and less as he got older. But there have been a few times like when I've talked to him since where he'll bring something up that I know he lied about. And even some things that I was there for. And he'll, he'll tell either a very exaggerated or an outright fabricated version. But I realize now that he's not lying about it. That he's actually, he's remembering his lie. This is something I've talked about before. Where Sometimes when you tell a lie, the next time you think about it, it feels like it happened because you're remembering the lie. And then the third time you think of it, the original story is just kind of an echo. And like you're remembering the fact that this is a story that you tell. You probably developed some sort of visual association, like you can imagine it. So you convince yourself you've seen it. I mean, that's exactly what I did with Friday the 13th. Like I I told that lie at a young age, the silliest lie you could make. Oh yeah, I've seen that movie. That I haven't. No material benefit. It's just a silly thing to lie about. But that's the most common lie. They're usually silly. But I, uh, you know, when I thought about Friday the Thirteenth throughout my life, I remembered the fact that I had said I had seen it. I, I knew so much about it. I had absorbed so much of it culturally. That. You know, I I had no reason to really disbelieve that I I hadn't seen it or whatever, (laughs) whatever. I I had no reason to question myself because it was like, I know exactly what Friday the 13th is. You know, how many Jason masks have I seen in my life? Growing up when I did, it was just a world of Jason masks. Kids would just wear a Jason mask for the hell of it. Seemed like every boy had one of those white hockey masks. Every Halloween, you'd see a bunch of them kids would just have them they were cheaply made you could probably get one of those for five bucks at the halloween store i think i had one i think i even had a jason mask just the cheapest one those cheapest those cheap white plastic ones with an elastic band so it was just a a world of jason people would talk about him carrying a machete like i said you knew everything about it even if you hadn't seen it you saw it everywhere you saw him everywhere But I was remembering a lie. You know, the fact that I, I was remembering the fact that I, I said I had seen it. And that over time convinced me that I had. So seeing that play out with other people is interesting. Like that friend where occasionally I'm aware of the fact that he's remembering a lie. But I don't think he's lying. I don't, I don't think that he's deliberately lying now. It's just that he forgot he even lied. He's an interesting case because everything I've said about him would make you think that... I'm talking shit, or he's a bad person, which I don't think he is at all. But I, I saw his patterns of behavior from a young age, and he wasn't taught to do it. But something in him compelled him to tell stories. And, and what's interesting, too, is he was popular, his family had money, he wasn't wanting for anything. He really wasn't wanting for anything. And his lies could be very small and unimportant. Like I mentioned the video game stuff. Like saying, oh, there's a secret in this video game. And you have to do this, this, and this to see it. And it turned out it didn't exist. And he would, he would claim that he had seen it at so-and-so's house. And that so-and-so would always be a kid who went to another school who you didn't know. He would do it with toys and stuff. He, w- he would say he had seen some action figure. One time he, uh, he told some story about getting an action figure that didn't exist. He was like, oh, there's a, I, I got this special edition action figure, blah, blah. He would do things like that. And I guess it would give him cool points. I guess the benefit he got is that he had some unique jewel, or he'd seen the unique jewel. He had caught in a glimpse, and it gave him some kind of stature or made him more interesting. I don't know exactly what it was. I'm not going to psych 101 him. And I'm also not talking shit here. This was a pattern of behavior, and I got to see it firsthand, I'm sure he could tell you about a million pathological things I did. But then in his case, it's good that, you know, maybe he still does it a little bit. I don't know. But in terms of my interaction with him as adults, he does it significantly less. Like I said, it's, it's kind of only the backwash of the, some of the early exaggerations and fabrications where he's remembering, he has a vague recollection of it. But I think he's forgotten that he, he lied about it or made it up or exaggerated it. But it's easy to do that. I mean, I've that, that repetition kind of making you think something's real that's not. You know, I, I've discovered that with research and things. Where I'll be researching something and I, I have a theory about it. The next time I think about it, the theory's a little more concrete or not concrete, but it has a stronger foundation because this isn't the first time I've thought about it. The first time you theorize it, you're like, okay, maybe this is what happened, but I'm not sure. The next time you think about it, you're remembering the fact that you already theorized it. So it becomes less theoretical and you start to think that's that might actually be it. But the third time you think of it, you might just say, oh, that's what happened. Same thing with lies first time you tell it, you know, you're lying. Second time you think about it, it's a little hazier. By the third time, you're just like, Oh, yeah, that happened. And you wonder how much of that's gone on. You know, we've seen the role the internet's played in that. Where sometimes you'll be re I mean, a lot of this is intuitive. Somehow, even through text, you can tell when someone's lying. Uh, There was a time where somebody sent me a text message, and I just felt they were lying. I just felt it there was no intellectual reason to think that something just sounded dishonest about what they were telling me and it it was it turned out it was a lie Uh, I'm not going to go into detail but I learned that what they said was a lie so even through text and, and that's a big thing online where someone will tell a story and people's immediate reaction is like that didn't happen yeah right yeah, I'll put the chances of that happening between zero and zero. There's that sort of attitude. I mean, I think sometimes people can respond to, to, to truths that way. There's something in us that's cynical and wants to believe that everybody's lying sometimes. I used to think that way more. I used to th- be of a more of a mindset where if somebody just said something, I was way more cynical about it. I think I'm less cynical about that. I think I'm, I'm w- more willing to take people at their word now. But I still feel that. And, and I mean, sometimes just intuitively, I'm like, oh, this is a lie. And we've really seen that online. And it shows you that our detector for truth works even in just language on a screen. Something about language on a screen tells you, oh, this didn't happen. That happens, too, when hoaxes hit the news. When a hoax hits the news and it hasn't been disproven yet, sometimes you see it and you're just, your gut reaction is that something just doesn't seem right. And then a few days later, sure enough, it's a hoax. So we're able to detect that. Like We can detect when someone we know is lying. Like talking about my friends growing up, we would talk amongst ourselves about this other friend sometimes. We'd be like, you know, he told me this. I don't think it's true. We would compare notes. And we just kind of knew that about him. Just like we were able to detect it when he was telling a lie, telling a a tall tale. He was more of a tall tale teller than he was what I would call a liar. A tall tale teller. A tall tale teller. Well, if it isn't tall tale teller. But I... you know, just like we were able to kind of detect when he was telling a, a tall tale, you, you're able to do it even through messages, even through email, even through you know you can just tell. There's something about it. It's almost like some sort of psychic odor gets emitted. We're like something about this isn't right, and you have to listen to that. Not that your sensor, your sense can't be wrong. Not your that your intuition can't be wrong. But I do find if you actually listen to that, you're like, okay, there's more to this. You can do it with a news article. You can do it with some random internet post. You can do it with something somebody's telling you. And it's interesting to me that some people fall into that more. Like some people have a stronger need to do that. I mean, I've known some people who have, told some stories about their family, like somebody I I know very closely. As soon as social media got big, they started making up this sort of victim complex, and blaming certain relatives, and doing it publicly. And I can say 100% that a number of these statements were exaggerated, if not fabricated. This isn't a manipulative person. This isn't somebody who's typically a liar. But for whatever reason, I think part of it is just the climate we're in. It really uh, it really convinces people to think this way. But this person kind of came up with this whole victim narrative for themselves and it involved their family and it involved them actually fabricating certain events and distorting them. And it... You can't talk to this person about it because they're convinced of it now. They've repeated those to themselves many times, and they're convinced of it now. And so that's kind of what I want to say about this in general is just, you know, these things calcify. You say them, just, it might be harmless. It might be, oh, have you seen Friday the 13th? Yep. might be as simple as that. But that calcified a little bit. It's not like that's played any important role in my life. Nothing in my life has depended on whether I really saw Friday the thirteenth or not. But it still calcified a little bit. Just because I made that initial lie, I convinced myself. And you see that in other people. I think this it's just what happens. I, I don't I guess it's our way of reconciling the cognitive dissonance. You know, because one way to reconcile that cognitive dissonance is to just convince yourself that it's the truth. Because it's difficult to live with something that isn't true. Yeah, all kinds of things are open to interpretation. You can get into some, you know, masturbatory discussion of what truth is. But we basically know. We know very little. But we have a sense for what's true. And, uh... (laughs) where am I going? I was thinking so hard about avoiding certain topics that I don't even know what I'm saying. Uh, You know, we have a basic sense for what's true. And so there's this cognitive dissonance when we know that we've told a lie. So one way of reconciling that cognitive dissonance, these opposing things, this happened, but I said this other thing happened, is to believe it, to let it calcify, to let it become a part of your story. And when enough time passes, and you've repeated it enough, or at the very least not challenged yourself on it. You just kind of start thinking it's real. Because you can't live with the fact that it might not be. You can't live with the fact that, hey, I'm splitting reality in half. And one of those halves is not real. Another way you deal with it, though, is to think about it. I mean, that's me tonight. I'm just like, yeah, I'm thinking today about the times that I've lied. I'm remembering my lies. Not remembering the stories. I'm remembering the lies. I'm remembering the lies. And I I think that's it's torture on one hand. On one hand, it's very much torture. But I think it's kind of a necessary torture. And it's kind of like a riddle. Because some lies, sometimes where you've exaggerated, sometimes where you've been dishonest, most of the time, for me, it's of little consequence. It wasn't something that hurt anybody else. It was usually just something like, yeah, I've seen that movie. Those are most of the lies we tell. Oh, I've done that thing. Oh, I know what that is. We do it a lot with information. I think you see... That's probably where most of the lies people tell come from. Is when you're asked if you know about something. Not just have you seen a movie, but you you pretend to know things you don't. And then sometimes you pretend to not know things that you do know. I've talked a lot about that in connection with some of these topics. How in school... A lot of people pretended to know less than they did. It was uncool to raise your hand when the teacher asks a question and answer it. Part of that is not wanting to be the teacher's pet. But I knew a lot of kids growing up who would act like they were the dumbest person in the world and they knew nothing, but they actually knew a lot. It was almost some form of social survival to pretend not to know as much as they did. People do it with other people. That was a big part of this in school. Kids would, would go to school, be in class with everybody, go to this building every single day for years, but they would act like they didn't know who certain people were. It's not like you're going to know every single kid, but there'd be somebody who'd be in your class every day, like, you know, who, you know who these people are, but if you were to ask them, they'd be like, I don't know who that is. There's some form of social power in pretending not to know who people are, and all those people have to do is get drunk once as adults at a townie bar. They know who everybody is. They're like, oh, you know, and you had an older sister too. I know your first name, your last name. I know what neighborhood you live in. And you had an older sister too, right? You know, they know everything about you because they're observant. They went to school every day just like you did. But admitting that you know who people are or know about people, for whatever reason, people are very guarded about that. And in that case, you know, part of that is the fear of them not knowing who you are or bluffing. Like, if you know who some pretty girl is who you have homeroom with, but she says she doesn't know who you are, it's like not existing. It's like melting into slime. It's damaging to the ego, the ego. So to protect yourself, you just kind of go around being like, I don't know who anybody is. I don't know. I don't know the answer to anything. So we do that from an early age. We we pretend to not know as much as we do. But another thing we do in other situations is pretend to know more than we do. Pretend to be experts. We want to be seen as smart or cool or whatever it is. Oh, you don't know where that is. You don't know that. Because that's what you might get. You fear that. You know, somebody comes up to you and says, uh, do you know where Jakarta is? Do you know where Jakarta is? And you say, no, you don't. It's a a weird example, but there's things like that. Do you know about this? And if you say no, it's like, oh, you don't. You don't know about that? So sometimes people are like, I know. You see it with jokes. Maybe jokes are a better example. Where if somebody tells you a joke and you don't get it, it's very easy to lie and do a fake laugh and pretend that you do. A lot of people do that to the point where that itself is a joke. And you, you see this in people too, because sometimes someone will be told a joke, the recipient of the joke, what we call the recipient of the joke. They start laughing, then they stop and they go, wait, what does that mean? Somebody, uh, I don't know, I, I can't think of a joke on the fly.
1: Joke on the fly. Did you hear about the joke on the fly? It got caught buzzing around.
0: Ha! Ah. Wait, what does that mean? Joke has no meaning. I made it up on the fly. But, uh, it's a good joke. I should come up with a, a good answer to that. I should, I, I should turn that into a real joke. But no, it's very common for people to pretend to get the joke. Cuz the alternative is the oh no, they might think I have a bad sense of humor. Oh, they might think I'm too stupid to get the joke. And it's one thing to not laugh at all, to just go, "Huh? I don't get it." But that makes you oddly vulnerable. Like I've always I, I hate that word, vulnerable. It makes me oddly vulnerable. When someone tells a joke and I don't get it, it to admit that makes me feel
1: oddly vulnerable. Vulnerable. Make me feel vulnerable. Make me feel vulnerable.
0: Good noises there. No, it makes it makes you feel oddly vulnerable in the true sense of the word, because you're like, oh shit. I don't know the thing I'm supposed to know. I don't get the thing I'm supposed to know. So what you do is you fake li- oh. laugh. And the fake laugh is one thing, but my favorite is the combination of like somebody who starts to fake laugh but they realize they have no fucking idea. And they're like, wait, explain it again? I wanted to laugh. Because that's that's being agreeable too though. It's not just that you want to be cool, you want to be in the know. It's that you also want to be agreeable. You want to respond favorably. You want more jokes. If I don't laugh at the first joke, I'm not going to get any future. They're not going to tell me jokes in the future. If they tell me a joke and I don't laugh, he's never going to tell me another joke. So you want to be agreeable. like It's like a yes and sort of impulse. It's productive in a way. Where it's like, I, I, I want this to be a favorable interaction. So I'm going to go along with it. But you can see in that situation where like not getting it is, is uh, I don't know, something I wouldn't be able to break that down. I don't know what an evolutionary biologist would say about that. But there's something in people that fears not, not knowing what someone's talking about. They fear not getting the joke someone just told. And their, their first impulse is to lie and, and do a fake laugh even though it might just be a shitty joke that doesn't make sense. Like that, that stupid uh, fly joke I just made. It's not even a joke. It's just truly just nonsense bullshit that I'm saying right now. But if I were to tell somebody that, it'd be an interesting test. I wouldn't want to do this to somebody. I'm not in a, a college psychology class where you go, oh, I'm going to go stand in an elevator facing the opposite direction and then write about what people do. So there's those college psychology courses where it's like, we want you to go out and do something wild in public and then see see what people do and then write about it. It's not like that. Oh, I'm going to go out and tell people really bad jokes that don't make sense just to see what they do. It's a social experiment. I'm doing a social experiment. Social spearmint.
1: This is a social spearmint. I'm doing a social experiment.
0: Um, you know, but still, I mean, it would be interesting to see how people react to that. You know, tell them a joke that purposely doesn't make sense, but like the tone of it should make a joke where, like, the tone of it, the delivery of it, seems like it's a good joke, but in reality, there's nothing to get. It, it makes no sense. And just see how someone reacts to that. Well, you already know a certain number of people would be like. <laughs> Another number would be like. <laughs> what? What? Wait, what? And then people who are willing to be honest. People who are willing to be vulnerable. Are going to respond and go. I don't even. That, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't even make sense. There's a number of people who are going to be honest about it. But there is something in people that wants to be agreeable. Um. So if we if, if we do that with humor, I mean, you do it with anything. You win. You want to be in on it, but your your first reaction to that though is more self deprecating than anything. If you don't get the joke, spending a lot of time on this one, but if you don't get the joke, your your impulse is to think like I'm stupid. I'm not cool. I'm
1: stupid. I'm not cool. I'm I'm stupid. I'm not cool
0: your first impulse is that rather than they're stupid and telling a joke that doesn't make sense you 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 assume that that person knows more than you do you assume that that person is funnier than you or that they get it and you don't rather than the opposite which is like i get things and they they just told a bad joke it's it, it's directed inward and you and that that's just a one example of the way people think psychologically you know A lot of us uh, think that way about all kinds of things. Oh, that means I'm stupid. Because you don't want to be the opposite either. I mean, if if you're really disagreeable, you go through life thinking everybody else is stupid except for me. I'm funny and they're not. You you don't want to think that way about it. I think it's actually a good thing in a way that we want to be agreeable, that we want to answer in the affirmative. It's just there. there's so much fucking information. There's so many things people say to each other. In simpler times, the thing I'm talking about might have had a very necessary function that worked. When someone tells you something, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. If someone tells you a joke, assume it's a good one and laugh. If someone asks you if you've seen Friday the 13th, tell them yes. Because it's it's better, it's better that, (laughs) I don't even fucking know. Uh, Something in us uh, wants to be in harmony with the person talking to us. It's why we also mirror each other's language. I mean, I noticed this with people that I send messages to. Where if they're the type of person who types properly, I'm more likely to type properly. You kind of want to meet people at their own level. And I'm naturally the kind of person who, who does write properly. Normally, I'm the kind of person who, you know, my text messages, I, I capitalize the letters. They're not perfect because they're just text messages. But, uh, you know, I, I tend to capitalize the letters that need to be capitalized. I tend to use proper punctuation. But if I'm talking to a friend who's very casual, if they type in lowercase and don't use punctuation, don't care about spelling, I might not go as far as them, but I'm more likely to be a little casual and I don't think it through. I don't do this strategically. I don't think like, oh, I'm talking to him. He doesn't use periods at the end of his sentences, so I'm not either. You just kind of veer that way. It's a way of of using the same language they use. And I notice with friends who are more proper, like if I have a friend who messages me and they they use capital letters and proper punctuation, I'm more likely to do that. That's more my comfort zone. I I generally do that. And uh, but uh, why? Well, because you want to be in harmony, you want to be on the same page. It's why people mimic each other's verbal language. Like I've, I've noticed that if you're in a face-to-face conversation with somebody and they keep using a certain word, and that happens to me, I think that happens to everybody, where a certain word gets in your head and you keep using it. It's not the, it's not, it's not a generic word, but you just have a certain word in your head. Like you have the word extrapolate in your brain that day. And you're like, well, to extrapolate. Well, I think they were
1: extrapolating,
0: and then by the third time you say it, you're like, "Fuck!" I keep saying that word in this conversation. But I've noticed if you're talking to somebody else who's doing that, you might suddenly start doing it. People mimic each other's language. It's like when people made fun of Madonna for taking on a British accent. I'm willing to believe she was lying because I think Madonna. I have nothing against. Like I got nothing against Madonna, but I do think that she's probably told a lot of lies. Madonna seems like she's told a lot of lies. I can't prove that. My gut tells me Madonna's probably told some lies, not terrible ones. I don't think Madonna's a bad person. But when she did her British accent in the 90s, that was a big cultural talking point. You'd hear a group of housewives hanging out. You go to lunch. There'd be a group of housewives out having a, a, a girl's lunch at the next table you're at. The next table over, and you'd overhear them be like, in hey Madonna's British accent, so fake. Are you her British accent? So fake. it was a big talking point. Normal people were talking about the fact that Madonna's lying. Madonna doesn't really have a British accent. But when I look back at that, I don't know if she was lying. Maybe intuitively people knew there was something dishonest. I mean, it, it seems kind of, it seems dishonest. I don't know how long you have to live in a place to take on the accent seems like you'd have to be there a really long time. But the truth is, if she was only talking to Brits, I think she married one, she's only talking to Brits, who knows? You know, we've learned just recently that I've talked about this a few times, but I think it's worth bringing up. I like bringing it up. I really like bringing this up, which is that teenage girls who who are addicted to TikTok develop Tourette's, Tourette's Symptoms. And it turns out it was because millions of teenage girls were watching these videos of this very popular TikTok star who either has Tourette's or he makes videos pretending to have it. And kids are just hypnotized by this. Teenage girls were hypnotized by what I imagine is a young, attractive boy, uh, a YAB, a YAB. These girls, they were just attracted to this YAB.
1: He's just a yab yeah, with Tourette's,
0: but I imagine he was attractive or charming or something, but his videos are just him with Tourette's and they found that all of these teenage girls were developing Tourette's symptoms and it's because they were watching this guy. They were hypnotized by him. They were seeing all these videos. I think young women are more susceptible to that than young men and we see that play out in a number of different ways, but I think all people do it. And if a young girl can develop Tourette's just by watching TikTok videos of a guy with Tourette's, well, of course, we're going to mirror each other's language. Of course, we're going to start talking like each other. And I've noticed this in conversations where you just naturally start talking more like that person. Not exactly. Not like you're trying to copy them. You're just kind of meeting them at their level. And we do it with vocabulary. Like if you're talking to somebody who doesn't seem like they have a good vocabulary without even thinking about it, if you're if you're aware at all, without even thinking about it, you might start tailoring your language so that they can understand it. I mean, sometimes people do that condescendingly. I mean, I've heard black people talk about they feel like uh, people will dumb down their language when they talk to them and things like that. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, I mean, people do it with blue-collar people as well. I mean, there was something... Uh, Michael DeLeonardo mentioned, which is that uh, John Gotti, he said, actually had a good vocabulary. You know, he was this hoodlum from the street, but he had a good vocabulary, but he didn't let people know. He would, he would pronounce things like D's and D's is what he said. Like instead of these and those, you'd say D's and D's, you know. He would talk like a street guy, an uneducated an street guy, which he was, but he obviously had a, a higher intellect. And actually knew bigger words, but he purposely didn't say them. Like he didn't want to let people know that he was actually uh, pretty skilled with language. But part of that's also probably because of who he was talking to. You're talking to people who might not know that word you're using. You're talking to people who might just communicate in very simple terms. doesn't mean they're stupid. They might just communicate in very simple terms. And so if you're talking to somebody like that, and you assume that of them, because sometimes it's an assumption. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm talking to this blue-collar redneck. I've got to tailor my speech for him so that he understands. You know, sometimes it's an assumption, and people can surprise you. But a lot of times you just kind of pick up on the fact that, oh, this person communicates a certain way. I'm going to meet them on their level. You don't even have to think about it. You just end up doing it. And other people might do that to you. I mean, there's certainly people who you wouldn't expect to have a good vocabulary. And they start talking to you and it becomes evident that they do. I don't know why I'm deep on this vocabulary thing, but just mirroring each other. We're constantly trying to mirror each other. And some people don't give a fuck. Some people, it doesn't matter who they're talking to. But a lot of us, I think I think people who know how to navigate society. It's about as broad as you can get. They, this guy, you see this guy over here? He really knows how to navigate society. You know what I like about you? You're the kind of guy who really knows how to navigate society. That's what it is, though. It's, it's kind of knowing how to to weave in and out of... Who people are. <laughs> anyway, back to Madonna. I don't know if it was fake. Because I could see, you know, just like these girls developing Tourette's through TikTok by watching too many Tourette's TikTok videos. I don't know if Madonna was just hanging out with British people all the time. Who's to say she wouldn't pick up some of that? I had a friend who spent some time, he spent a summer in India. Maybe a little longer, maybe six months. I think he spent about six months in India. And... Uh, when he came back, I noticed when he would talk to people from India, like at gas stations, I'm not even kidding, he would talk to them. He would say a couple of words to them in uh, whatever the language is. Is it Hindi? I don't know what the language is. Indian. He'd say something to them in Indian. Just basic. It's not like he, it's not like he came back fluent. But he would say just a couple things, and then he would talk to them in English for a minute, and they liked it. You know, how many Indian 7-Eleven owners had a, a, a blonde haired, blue eyed, all American boy come in and say words to them in Indian and, and very kindly, this is a very kind person I'm talking about, very kind person, but then suddenly just like asking them about themselves with a little perspective, someone who spent time there, you could tell they liked it. But one thing I noticed is when he would talk to them in English. He would take on a little bit of an Indian accent. And this guy, he he was, this guy's like, this guy would be a good, uh, this guy would be like, uh, if I can get my words out, this guy would be like the hero of a story. This guy, this guy was pure. He's one of the purest people I've ever, ever met, but he took on a little bit of this Indian accent, but only when he would talk to Indians in America. And I saw him do this more than once. We went to a lot of 7 during this period. And at first I was like, what's he doing? Another friend even commented on it. They were like, have you noticed that he takes on a little bit of an Indian accent when he speaks in English to 7-Eleven employees? But I think it was because he had been talking to people. When he talked to people in English in India, all of the people he was talking to had that accent. So I think he kind of developed this habit of sounding more like them. Like I bet when he talked to Indians in India in English that he kind of matched them so that they would understand. And I think he did this for six months, probably doing that continuously. Probably most of the human beings he talked to in English had that accent. And it's not that he took on that accent himself. It's just that he got used to talking to Indians. He got used to talking to people with that accent in a tone with a little bit of a with the phrasing that was more like them. And that makes sense. He wasn't doing it to seem cool. He wasn't like, oh, these Indians, they get to think I'm cool if I sound like them. I mean, it's insane to think about. Like in today's world, if somebody heard him doing that, they would think he was making fun of them. They would think he was doing like an apu voice, which I understand is bad now. I think they got rid of Apu. I'm not a Simpsons fan. It's a cool world. What I have to say about The Simpsons, they made a cool world. It's, you know, it's a cool show. It was a good show, but wasn't a big Simpsons guy, so I don't know all the ins and outs. But I heard they got rid of Apu because, you know, his voice and everything was considered offensive. No need to go into that stuff. But if someone were to have heard my friend, I think they would think he was doing that. Somebody who assumes the worst would be like, oh, he he's mocking them by using their accent. In reality, I think he just got accustomed to talking to them that way in India. He's got used to matching their tone and phrasing. Maybe it's a similar thing with Madani. Maybe it's a similar similar thing with Madani. Maybe it is. Maybe she just got used to doing that. I'm, I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt because my gut impulse as a kid, the pitchforks were out. You'd have to have been of age then. You'd have to be conscious then. Whenever that was, around the mid '90s, people were really giving Madonna, 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 a lot of shit about her fake accent or her her the the because it sounded so half-assed. It didn't sound cool like a British accent. It sounded like somebody doing a really bad fake accent. So that didn't help her. It's not helping yet fact that it doesn't even sound good. And how long does it take to do that? Because, I mean, there's people who live in the United States for 40 years and still keep their full original accent. There's Americans who go and live in other countries and don't take on the accent. People who live there for decades who don't sound like the locals. And maybe that goes back to the linguistic conservative thing. This is what colleges, universities should be doing studies about. Whether uh, they should be doing studies to see whether there's a correlation between people who are quick to adopt new slang and buzzwords and catchphrases, and people who are quick to take on new accents just because they spend time in a place for a few months. You know, is there a correlation there? Is your willingness to adopt new words and phrases, popular ones, is that does that like come from the same part of the brain that makes people? mirror other people's language more and and change how they talk based on their surroundings and the inverse you know is is somebody who's very reluctant to take on new words and phrases are they less likely to be impacted by their surroundings are they less likely to you know change the affectation, a, 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 affectation of their voice based on where they live i don't know it'd be interesting to find out i don't know i don't even know how you, how you'd begin to study that yeah, you do a questionnaire where you ask the participant, What do you think of man caves? What do you think of words like fire? What do you think of this Zoom, Zomer slang? But then you'd also have to send them to a foreign country and monitor their interactions with other people and see whether they pick up the accent. Very difficult study to do, but this is what universities should be doing. Rather than studying, you know, crows. Rather than telling us the sky is blue every six months, these university studies should be uh, mapping out these things. And for that matter, whether the sort of person who develops Tourette's symptoms through TikTok by watching other people with Tourette's Whether that person is more likely to adopt new slang. Whether they're more likely to take on a fake accent if they're around people who have that accent. I mean, I've probably developed... I don't even know what my real voice is anymore. You know, I do these stupid accents on here. Every once in a while, I catch myself talking that way. Every once in a while, I catch myself actually saying something sincerely that sounds like one of those accents. So the phantom voices in your own head can actually change your real voice. Because, I mean, to be fair, I talk to a good amount of people as me, you know, as myself. But, I mean, who knows how many hours I've spent doing stupid accents. That's got to rub off on you. So, maybe somebody should study me. Study me. Will you study me? Some university is going to get a grant to study me. But, you know, I am curious about certain types of people, you know, since coming up with that idea myself, I'm sure other people have studied this, but I've never heard it mentioned just of linguistic conservatism. Where you kind of take offense when somebody tries to fuck with language too much. You trying to fuck with language Trying to
1: fuck my language? Oh, you going to fuck my language up? You're trying to fuck my language up?
0: Trying to fuck my language up? To be honest, that's kind of how I feel. Whenever the memo goes out that we're saying this now,
1: we're saying this now, when we like something, we say it's fire. When something's good, we, we say this is fire this is far, this is far,
0: this is (laughs) far, this is far. Yeah, we
1: call that this now. Oh, that's called this.
0: But since, you know, recognizing that about myself, I mean, that's something that I never really identified about myself, but it's been true my entire life. In school, I felt it. In school, when suddenly the memo would go out that we're saying this now. This is the new language of the teenagers and we're saying this now.
1: This is the language of the teenagers. We're we're saying this now. We're speaking language the adults don't think. Tight. Oh man, that's tight. Oh dude, that's tight,
0: man. You know, when people started saying tight, I didn't trust it. I thought, I don't trust this. I don't trust this new term how I feel when I see people adopt, you know, I mentioned this before, but like when I see people my age, people who are, are well into, people who are right dead center in the millennium age bracket, the millennial age bracket, the millennial age bracket, you know, people who are dead center in that. And I notice people my age, 35, 36, 37, I'm all those ages might as well be but uh, when I noticed them adopting zomer slang zoomer Zomer. when I noticed them
1: adopting Zomer zomer slang couldn't help but notice that you're my age but you're adopting zoomer zomer slang zoomer Omer slang
0: just ruin that but uh I notice when people uh, start doing that I don't trust them not on a deep level not like oh my god I I really I can't trust that person at all. You know, it's not like it's it's on a deep level. I just kind of think, oh, you're flimsy. There's something kind of flimsy about you. If you'll put new words in your mouth, I think you'll put anything in your mouth. Who knows what kind of garbage you're willing to put in your mouth? Who knows what kind of things you're going to put in there? Who knows what kind of things are going to come out? Who knows what you're thinking? If you're willing to put new words in your mouth that quickly, who knows what you're willing to put in your head? That's just my gut response. I don't think all that through. That's not my thought bubble. But I was watching this comedy show a uh, podcast. It's run by some comedians I'm not that familiar with. I've seen one of the guys who hosts it on a few different shows. But I, and it's something about him I don't really like. He doesn't seem like a horrible guy. He's close friends with a bunch of people I find really funny and likable. But a comedian I like was on that guy's show. And I'd never really thought about this guy too deeply. I just, something just kind of rubbed me the wrong way about him when I've seen him. But I watched his show because somebody else I like was on it. And all of a sudden he was saying something and he just started yelling out Zoomer slang, but I could tell he was doing it in earnest. I could tell that he probably started doing it ironically. Like, oh, it'd be funny to be almost 40 years old and talk like a Zoomer Zoomer. Dude, wouldn't it be kind of a funny bit? Wouldn't it be kind of a funny gag?
1: If I, if I say the things that zoomers, omers say,
0: cause we all have access to it. We can all see how zoomers talk on social media or in places on TikTok. TikTok. So you could tell this guy probably started doing it as a joke. Oh, wouldn't it be funny if I'm 40 years old talking like a Zomer? but when he said this on the show, I was like, holy shit. Like he's saying that you can tell that he talks that way now he's adopted the slang of, of the youth. And uh, I noticed that from other people. I mean, I notice it from people I like. It just tells me that they're linguistically more progressive. Like, I'll make up stupid shit. I'll fuck around with language in a stupid way. I like playing around with language. But I won't put new language in my mouth too quickly. I'm like, I don't know where that's been. I don't know where that came from. I don't want to put that word in my mouth if I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it's been before me. And we have a machine doing that to us now, too. That's made things different. Like, that used to spread a little more organically. Like, thinking about the word tight, which I've talked about a lot on here. You know, it's kind of adjacent to the Wigger analysis I like to do. That's the linguistic side of it is uh, what sort of words did the Wiggers say?
1: What sort of words did the Wiggers say? What sort of words did the Wiggers say?
0: Tight was a big one. That was probably the word they used the most. That's tight. That's tight. They said it a lot. But that came like a big wave. It wasn't like language was constantly coming and going. I mean, I would say I spent, you know, the first... 13 years of my life with a pretty steady set of words cool Everybody said cool. Your parents said cool, but saying cool was never uncool So you said cool there were some 80s ones there was rad You know people said rad in earnest when I was a little kid but By the time I was 13 years old. You only heard rad used fairly ironically. Oh, that's rad people were kind of making fun of 80s terms But they came upon us way more slowly. Whereas in the age of ultra-connectivity, social media, texting, videos and videos, access to everybody, new language is spreading much quicker. And it's not just slang. It's not just a new term for for saying something's cool. It's that there's all these political phrases. There's all these slogans. There's all these buzzwords, and they're coming at us constantly, and they become uncool. They have a very short shelf life. And so more of them keep coming. And that just freaks me out even more. As a linguistic conservative, that freaks me out that much more. I'm like, there's all these new words. They need to build a wall around the words. We need to build a a wall around the language. Because there's all these new... sayings and words just pouring in what we call undocumented words there's all these undocumented words coming into my world I need to gain some trust I want to live in a high trust linguistic society where we really trust the words we're using we're not too quick to adopt them and let them in Not too quick to put them on our mouth, put them in our mouth, on our tongue, in our mouth. But part of what speeds that up is the mirroring, the agreeableness. If you hang out with somebody, just like I was saying, if somebody uses a weird word a lot in a sentence. Like, I think this is what happened with teenage girls. You're speaking of social contagion. There was a social contagion that a lot of people are aware of, but it's never been identified as a social contagion. And that's use of the word random by teenage girls. I don't know when that started, but I feel like it was when I was a teen. Where teenage girls just could not get the word random out of their mouth. Everything was random. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Anybody who was a teenager then, I don't know if this is still the case, but everybody who was a teenager in the 90s and first decade of the 2000s, knew that it was a cliche. Like, people have made fun of this. That teenage girls were always saying, that's so random. Random. It was just something they said, even when it didn't apply. Like, they misused it. Something that wasn't random at all would be met with, random. You're so random. Oh my God, that's so random. And it wouldn't be something random at all, but it was just, it was stuck in girls' heads. It was a social contagion. I'm guessing one day some girl was saying that to another girl. It spread to her. They started mimicking each other. And then it just spread like wildfire. For whatever reason, random was a really attractive word to teenage girls. But it could be any word. I mean, because you just see this one-on-one. Like I said, extrapolated a minute ago. If for whatever reason you keep using the word extrapolated in a conversation with somebody, there's a decent chance it's going to, it's going to infect them a little bit. And, uh, you know, you can tell how, uh, I don't know. I don't know. If there's, I don't know there's anything you can do to stop that either. And I think it's kind of a good thing. Even though people complain about these sort of things. I think it comes from, a, I think it has a purpose. I think the purpose is to be in harmony. If you talk the same way, you're more like one entity. If you think of human beings as cells, you know, I don't, I don't, or spirits. I'm more of a spirit guy than a cell guy. But if you think of human beings as as cells, an individual human is a cell. That's like your cell joining their cell. It's union, it's yoga, it's yogi, it's yogi. When you're talking to a British person and you start taking on a British accent. When you when some, when you're talking to a teenage girl and she keeps using the word random and suddenly you start saying random. I think it's your cells kind of trying to join together and form a union. We're going to go real deep here, but you think about man and woman as a union. They come together, these cells come together, they create a new cell that's attached to them, that's made up of the qualities of each of those cells that produce them. But it's about joining, it's about union, it's about harmony. But I think we do that on all sorts of levels. I think we do that just in conversation. I think it's why people dress alike. It's why trends happen. We don't see it on that level because we think we're big. We don't see ourselves from that top down level. But imagine if you were observing some of this behavior without knowing what we are and seeing things through our eyes. And you were just to be like, okay, that that cell dyed its hair. It bleached its hair and spiked it up. And it's wearing baggy hoodies. Oh, and look, these other cells around it are starting to do that. It's spreading. And what's happening is those cells are bunching together. I mean, this this isn't science I'm talking about. This is just me. (laughs) Who knows what the fuck this is? An analogy. But it's like you would see that from afar and just be like, oh, these cells are mimicking each other because they're harmonizing. They're joining with each other. They're reflecting each other, something. And so I think it is kind of cellular though. Oh, these two cells are communicating. And they're each taking on elements of the other's speech. So think on a basic level, that is an attempt to harmonize. Oh, that cell just lied and said it had seen Friday the 13th when asked. But it didn't. That cell never saw Friday the 13th. But it's trying to harmonize with the other cell. It's lying because the alternative is that other cell might go away. It'll cause disharmony. When that cell asked the other cell if it had seen Friday the 13th. If that cell said no, it would separate those cells. This is really silly. Very silly here. But I think that's what it is on some level. I think it, there is this pressure to harmonize. And there are so many different ways that we can separate ourselves. There, there's so many different ways that it can become a disharmony. But we see some greater purpose or we we have some incentive, even if we don't know what it is, to agree, to be similar, to mimic each other. And what's interesting in light of that is that we're so critical of that too, that instead of saying, oh, Madonna moved to England and now she sounds British, kind of. Instead of saying, oh, she's harmonizing with her environment. She's harmonizing with her surroundings. Instead, the response is, that's not allowed. She's lying. She thinks that accent makes her sound cool. You know, that's that's kind of the, the response she gets. We don't see it as a positive thing for whatever reason. We see it as dishonesty. We see it as an untruth. Untruth.
1: Untruth untruth
0: so what is that what is it that is so critical of that I mean let's use me as an example when I hear a 40 year old man start using zoomer zomer slang what about me stops trusting that person why can't I see that and say oh he's trying to harmonize Yeah, maybe he's trying to be cool and hip and young, but he's trying to harmonize. He's trying to reconcile himself with something that's different from him by using the language of that thing. Why don't I see that side of it? But my gut response is, he's lying. He's trying to seem young. Why do I take the the more critical side of it? when I hear one of my peers say, oh, that's fire,
1: that's fire. Oh, dude, have you heard this song? It's fire. This song is so fire.
0: When I hear a peer say something like that, why do I see that as a bad thing? Why does, why do I get kind of a, a shiver up my spine? Why do I not trust that? I, don't, I have no answer to that. I mean, obviously, we like things to be true and honest. But that doesn't affect my life in any way. But it seems to be a principle I have that I didn't choose. I I am going to wrap this up soon. But, uh, you know, it seems to be a principle I have that I didn't choose to have, which is like when someone's too quick to adopt new slang... There's no intellectual reason why I oppose that, but on a gut level, I trust that person less. I have no reason, I have have no real justification for feeling that way, but I do. And it tells you something about people's wiring. It tells you that people respond to those things differently. You know, I mean, I'm I'm avoiding politics, not on purpose, but thankfully I haven't gotten too deep into that in this episode, but it does play into like, why are some people simply political conservatives while others are political progressives? It's obviously not just about data. It's obvious, obviously not just about environment. I mean, you have siblings who grew up in the same house who have complete opposite political viewpoints you have people who were raised by a parent and they have completely different political views. But yet some people are conservative. Some people respond to certain information more than others. And there is evidence that 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 has a biological or genetic component. I don't know if it's been definitively proven by the scientific institutions, but there has been research into it, I've heard about and uh, they have seen there, there has there has been research that's indicate that, that that indicates that some people are innately more conservative. And part of that is trust like they they're less likely to trust new things of, of any type. You know, obviously, traditionalism is a big part of conservatism. And to be traditional, to maintain a tradition, you do have to be a little resistant to anything that breaks tradition. And tradition changes over time, but some people are more wired to protect it. And by tradition, I don't just mean cultural traditions like dance, dances, And song and food, dances and song and food. I don't just mean that stuff. You know, I'm seeing like everything that a person does, the language they use, the way they live their life, their philosophical views, their principles. Some people seem to be wired more to try to protect that or maintain that. or at the very least resist changes to resist upgrades. I mean, speaking of upgrades, think about computers. You know, when my computer offers, it's like, oh, you know, Windows needs an update. Beyond the fact that it's inconvenient to have to sit there and let your computer update, you don't know how long it's going to take. Something about me doesn't like that it's being changed at all. It's not even about the time it will take to sit there and watch the the percentage bar go to 100, whatever. It's not just that. It's not just that I don't want to restart my computer. There's also something in me that doesn't trust the update. And honestly, my experience, the Windows, it's only gotten worse. Like there was a certain point where I really liked the way Windows was set up and how it operated. I really knew what I was doing. That was many updates ago. At some point, and it was okay up to a point. Like there were some upgrades to Windows. And I wouldn't be able to tell you when it was. Definitely sometime in the last decade. That it forced an upgrade on me. And I've hated it ever since. But my natural tendency when I see that there's a Windows update is to avoid it at all costs. Unless my program isn't going to work anymore. I avoid updates whenever possible. I just don't trust them. I feel like they're going to change something I like. And they usually do. They usually do change something I liked. Or remove something that was useful. And there's usually no obvious reason for them. That's kind of what it's like. Like when I hear new language, it's like, oh, there's an upgrade. I don't trust it. I don't trust it. I don't trust that upgrade. I don't trust that change. I'm not that way with everything. I can be open-minded about certain things, but my general temperament is very much that. Why are you fucking with that? Why are you changing that? I mean, I even react that way if there's a website I go to all the time and they make a significant change to the layout or how it works, I'm disturbed. A lot of people are. There's a lot of people who wouldn't even consider themselves conservative in any way who are conservative about many things like that. They don't realize it. They don't realize that those are conservative tendencies. Because there's another sort of person, when there's an upgrade or an update, they're like, oh, this is exciting. What'd they do? Oh, it must be better. It must be better. They must have had a good reason. You know, there's some people who think that way about it. But there's a lot of people who are like, "I, I don't like it. They changed it. And even if there is some improvement to it, when you change the the layout or structure of something, all of your you have to relearn new patterns. Like a good example of that is eB, the auction website. eB, they uh, they changed their uh, listing screen. I just noticed it recently. I hadn't seen it in a little bit. I hadn't seen it for a few weeks. Uh, today I, I saw, I had to edit an item that I just have listed, and I was like, oh. They completely changed this very recently in the last two weeks. I hate it. Because it was the same forever. Sure, they made small changes. But going back to when I first used EB over 20 years ago, probably like 2001. They haven't fundamentally changed how it works and operates and looks. The listing screen. I'm sure if you compared it then to now or to recently, it would look very different. But the basic layout, like you can kind of do it in your sleep if you've done it enough times. They changed it so substantially, though, in the last two weeks that it's very different. You don't even know where to look. Everything looks way different. You don't know where the price is. The way you upload photos is way different. Maybe I'll get used to that, but often these changes are for the worse. They don't improve on what already existed. They change it completely. That's a study I would like to see. Do people who react negatively to website redesigns, are they more likely to resist new slang? Are they more likely to um, favor tradition? Are they more conservative politically? I'd like to see if there's any correlation between that. Is there any correlation between the person who waits until the last possible second to upgrade windows? Is there any correlation between that and conservatism, political conservatism? I'm curious. These things seem like they could be related. And if not, that's interesting too. It's interesting that somebody can be conservative about some things and not others. But we know people can. I am. I'm conservative about some things and more progressive about others. Who knows what the fuck those terms mean now. But it's not like all my views are 100% the same on everything. But I do think there are certain patterns and it'd be interesting to know how much of that is correlated. I'm demanding a lot of studies here. I'm asking for a lot of studies. These are the things I want to know though. Don't tell me something we all already know intuitively. Tell me if there's correlation between certain behaviors. Tell me if someone who doesn't want to adopt new slang doesn't like sequels as much as the original. That's another thing. Because I think there's two types of people when it comes to movies, where there's a certain sort of person who enjoys a movie. Oh, I I love it. And when they when they see that a sequel's been announced, there's there's a certain sort of person who says, "Oh no. Oh no. There's a sequel. It's gonna suck." They're concerned that making a sequel for a movie they like is gonna somehow hurt the original movie, and they think, "Oh no! If this sucks, it's gonna make the original worse. It's gonna bother me. It's gonna taint the legacy." But there's another person who, when they hear the, a sequel's been announced, they're like, oh man,
1: another one. Dude, they're doing another one. Oh my God, that's amazing.
0: You know, there's another sort of person who's excited about a sequel. We know they often suck. And I, I'm very conservative when it comes to media like that. I'm, I'm very conservative when it comes to entertainment. When they announce they're doing a new version of something my initial response is negative. Oh, man. Why are you doing that? When they change something fundamental, my response is almost always negative. It's been the case for Star Wars.
1: Star Wars.
0: But for years now, anytime they announce a new Star Wars movie, I'm just like, oh, I don't care anymore. It's Star Wars is over. Star Wars is done. There's nothing to mourn. It's just done. But there was a point where I I may have been excited like when they announced the prequels I was still a kid and I was like that's exciting oh man they're making new ones and they're about the early years you know it's amazing all you had to do was see them to be disappointed and then when they continued to announce new ones after Disney bought it I wasn't excited I was just like oh they're just going to ruin it more they're just going to dumb down the legacy of the originals even more but I'm not the only type of Star Wars fan Am I a Star Wars fan still? I think I'll always consider myself a Star Wars fan. Yeah, I'm still a Star Wars fan. Got to be honest with myself. I'll always be a fan. But you have to kind of navigate around this shit. I'm a fan except most of what's been made, you know, about that world. You know, I'm a fan of the three original movies and that's about it. But anytime they've announced a new movie, I'm just like, fuck for a while there at least, like when they announced the sequels, the Disney series, it was just like, great. More crap. I didn't, I, I you know, there's no part of me that I just assumed the worst and then reached a point where I didn't care at all. It makes, it doesn't make any difference. You can make a million more. You could make them worse and worse. Maybe there have been good ones, but I'm past the point of even being interested. You could make a really good Star Wars, but it's kind of past the, the point of no return. I'd rather just see a good movie that has nothing to do with any existing intellectual property. Just make a new sci-fi movie. Maybe I'll check that out. But even if a new Star Wars movie was good, you know, it's not enough. But there's a very different type of person. There's a different type of Star Wars fan who's excited. I mean, I have an ex-girlfriend from many years ago. She still gets excited at every single Star Wars movie that comes out. It's sweet. Every single new Star Wars thing comes out. She's like, oh, awesome. She's going to go see it in the theater. She had a Star Wars themed wedding, from what I understand. And good for her. I'm just very different. I can't imagine still being excited about new Star Wars movies. But good for her. She's getting some enjoyment out of it. I'm not sitting here hating my life because I I don't enjoy Star Wars anymore. It's just a different type of person. There is a sort of person who sees it as as exciting. Oh, they're making more. They're very hopeful. They hear there's a new movie, very hopeful. They hear there's a new show. Baby Yodi.
1: Baby Yodi. They're excited about that. Oh, man, dude, can you believe this? They made Yogi a baby. They made Yodi a baby, Yogi baby.
0: Someone's excited about that. Who who would it get? Oh, my God. They made Yoda a baby. That's exciting to somebody. Good. I'm glad somebody's excited. Speaking of baby Yodi. Baby Yodi. Uh, speaking of baby Yodi. Um, I've noticed this with like online. Uh, what do you call those girls like thirst traps? I think they call them thirst traps, like girls who, who post scantily clad or even nude photos online. Is that a thirst trap? It doesn't make a difference. It's not my term. I'm not comfortable with that language. But I've noticed when I see pictures of those types of girls, like, like girls posing in lingerie, posing in skin-tight yogi pants, baby yogi pants. Baby Yoda yogi pants. Oh, dude.
1: Dude, this is fucking girl, man. Like... She wears baby Yoda yoga pants.
0: Dude, I I, I just, I want to marry her.
1: I want to marry this girl. She wears baby Yoda yoga pants.
0: You'll see that though. You'll see like a, a baby Yoda doll in the background. I've seen that a number of times. I don't even look at that much smut. I look at less smut at this point in my life than the average man, I bet. I hope. No, I know I do. That said, I'll be looking at those sort of photos because those are my favorite. When I am in the mood for smut, I, I just like those kind of photos. They disturb me more and more. But uh, you know, as a virgin alien monk, those are my favorite kind of photos. But you'll see a baby yoda though. It kind of freaks me out. Kind of freaks me out. I'll see a baby Yoda. I'll see a backpack sitting on the floor in the background with a baby Yoda printed all over it. But you know what? I'll take that any day over. There's a girl. There's a girl. I've seen her on on an image board that I go to on occasion. Takes a lot of scantily clad photos of herself. I'm not even, I don't even think I'm attracted to her. It's been a while since I saw it. But the reason I remember her is she poses with a wall of Funko Pop dolls in the background. She has an entire wall, like a shelving unit, for her Funko Pop dolls. And she has an entire wall of them. She's a Funko Pop doll collector. And that's low-hanging fruit, like making fun of Funko Pop dolls. It's low-hanging fruit. But they really are the most aesthetically bankrupt object that somehow became insanely popular. I don't know how people got sold on those. I understand collecting figurines and action figures. I understand little statues of video game characters, if that's what you're into. I understand anime dolls a little bit, you know? I can at least kind of understand it. I don't understand why you'd have an entire shelving unit of Funko Pop dolls. I, it just truly doesn't even compute with me. And its I gotta say, it's a weird combination When you have a a grown woman dressed like something, wearing some kind of lingerie, and outfit, posing, a very sexually suggestive pose, revealing, and then just behind her, taking up the entire screen, is just a wall of Funko Pop dolls. I don't think I trust anybody who, who has a collection of those. I'd like to meet somebody. I actually would. I would like to meet somebody who's genuinely into those. I wouldn't give them a hard time. I would just like to observe them for a little bit. But whoever has those, that's the sort of person who's who's excited about new things. A girl who posts smut of herself online in front of a wall of Funko Pop dolls, I bet she's excited about every Star Wars movie that comes out. I bet she loves new language, new catchphrases, new buzzwords. I don't mean this as a criticism of this young woman. I just think there's a correlation between these things. I bet she doesn't vote Republican. (laughs) If she does, well, all of a sudden I'm very attracted to her. Not because of her political views, just because of that combo. Just the combo alone. Republican girl posts scantily clad photos in front of a wall of Funko Pops. I can practically feel myself searching for that right now.
1: This land is mine God gave this land